We're going to be in Luke chapter 24, and if I could draw your attention to Luke chapter 24, verse 27. I want to read Luke 24 and verse 27, and that'll kind of be the launching point for our message this evening. Luke chapter 24, verse 27, here's what we read. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. How many of you like to go for long walks? Anyone? Have you ever gone for a long walk to clear your head? You ever done that before? You got a lot of things on your mind. I don't know how familiar you might be with this particular area, but where my house is located, it's located right on the backside of a place called Freer Field. How many of you know where Freer Field is? You've ever been to Balloon Fest? You know right where my yard is. Well, there's a mile-long track that walks through the woods back there, and there'll be times where there'll be things that'll be on my mind, or Beck's the same, and we just look at each other, and you just have that expression, as sometimes spouses do, and you say, I need to go for a walk. Yes? And she says, go ahead. And you can just go out there and you can kind of clear your head. And here in Luke 24, we see two disciples that are on the road. And this road is called Emmaus. And there's a lot of things that are on their mind. In fact, they are dealing with a lot of things that you and I are confronted in our modern age as well. Some of the things that they're dealing with is worry. None of you have ever been worried, I imagine. This is probably just me. Maybe disbelief. Maybe you've dealt with things like unmet expectations. You wanted things to go a certain way and things simply didn't turn out the way that you'd hoped or the way that you expected. Even within this text here in Luke chapter 24, and we're going to walk through verse 13 through verse 35, is this idea of misinformation. What, sometimes I just don't even know what to believe. And that's something that we deal with a great deal in our culture today. So I want to start by reading in verse 13, and here's basically the whole construct of what we'll go through tonight. I apologize being Friday when we found out the, the, the order of service tonight. This may not be the most homiletically polished message you've ever seen, but I can assure you of this, that this is something that God has been working in my heart personally. And I've been really stewing on Luke chapter 24, and, and it's meaning to me, and I hope that that will at least come through. So the way that we'll structure things is I'll give a great deal of introduction and then I'll give you three short points, and we may even get out early. Would that be all right? So verse 13 is where we will begin. And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about three score furlongs. And depending on what translation you may be reading from, I said three score furlongs. Furlongs are not something that we utilize uh, frequently in our day-to-day -day as far as lengths and measurements. But in our modern-day measurement, I would call that seven miles Roughly seven miles. I asked Matt Lamborn to give me some Google map directions, and this would be like walking from where I stand to a little bit south of Hayesville. That would be roughly the journey where these two are walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. So it gives us a little bit of idea of the distance. So the question that I ask myself is naturally inquisitive, is what were they doing in Jerusalem in the first place? <clears throat> And the reality is that they probably made this journey every single year because there was something that just occurred, and that thing that occurred was called the Passover. In fact, the Passover was a huge event in the life of all the Jewish people because it was where they would celebrate what God had done for them in re releasing them from bondage from the nation of Egypt. And every single year they would come to Jerusalem and they would celebrate the Passover together. But what ended up actually happening, right? I don't know how familiar you are with the story in, with Luke's gospel. We're right at the end. And in fact, it's something that we just celebrated a few weeks back that ended up happening instead. 
You see, these two went to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. They may have even been some of those people who were throwing palms at the feet of Jesus as he was entering into the city because everybody was excited that this person who was coming might just be the Messiah. And if you go back to what the Passover meant to them, it was this, that they were delivered from Egypt. But for a very long time, the nation of Israel had been in bondage to other nations. You think about when they went into captivity to, into Assyria, when they went into captivity to Babylon, then they got transferred to captivity to the Persians, then likely they were in captivity to the Greeks. And now what we are reading is they are in captivity or they are over they're governed by the Romans. They're not their own independent being able to govern themselves. So they see Jesus as the one who is going to reestablish the kingdom of David. He is going to take off this weight from the Roman Empire that is on their shoulders. That's why everybody was throwing palms at his feet, weren't they? But just a short while later, what ends up happening? Well, we know the truth. Jesus Christ is crucified. So think if you had put everything that you believed in this one person, and now that one person is gone. How would you feel about that? How would that change the way that you think? How would that increase your worry, your disbelief? How would that realize your unmet expectations? These are all the things that are happening. So now let's read verse 14. And we get a little bit of a glimpse into their mindset. And they talk together of all these things which had happened. They just, they are rehearsing the things that we just talked about a little while ago. In verse 15, something pretty fascinating happens. And it came to pass that while they were communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself, well, that's worth underlining, isn't it? Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Now, when we go back to verse 13, there's something very telling. And it says, and behold, two of them went that same day. Why does that same day so significant? What else happened on this same day? If you read a little bit back in Luke 24 and Luke 23, the thing that had happened the same day was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is what happened the same exact day. So when we get to verse 15, it's fascinating when it says that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Think about this. You have just overcome death and hell and everything that can be thrown at you. You have risen victorious and hold the keys to both of those things. Could you think of a lot of things that you could do? Yes? But what did Jesus do? It says Jesus drew near to them. Isn't that amazing? Jesus drew near of all the things the Lord could have done when he steps out of the tomb. On that same exact day, Jesus draws near to the weary disciples whose faith is falling apart a little bit because of all the unmet expectations that they anticipated. And you and I know that our worries and our struggles are never lost on our Savior, right? Of all the things the King of Glory could be doing, He wants to meet with you and I on whatever road and journey we find ourselves as we're walking through life. He wanted to come near to their heart because He knew that they were hurting. In fact, verse 16 says, but their eyes were holding, meaning they didn't comprehend what was happening that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another? And he identifies something about their character here, something about what was going on inside of them. Because you walk and you are sad. Our deepest emotions are not lost on the Lord, right? He understands. He, he is one who understands our infirmities, is what the writer of Hebrews reminds us. 
That God understands the deepest part of you and what you are dealing with in any given moment. And some of those things that we struggle with are disbelief. They are a crisis of faith, are they not? They are, as I said earlier, these unmet expectations that things did not go the way that we expected them to go, but God doesn't leave us there to wallow on that road all by ourselves. He enters in and he visits with us. Aren't you grateful for that? So I want to keep reading in verse 18 and 19. And one of them whose name was Cleopas answering said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem? Meaning, did you just get here? Did you just fall off the cabbage truck? This is a big deal that just happened. How do you not know what's going on? Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? It sounds like everybody that's leaving Jerusalem is talking about this thing that happened, right? It's on everybody's mind. It was the front page news of what was going on. And they said, and he said unto them, get this, and he says unto them, what things? Now, the title of the message is called The Seven Mile Sermon because we're going to talk about a sermon that Jesus preaches to these two that are traveling on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus could have started the sermon right then and there when they said, where have you been? Don't you know what's going on? They're speaking to the risen Christ who in that moment could have just started the sermon. But I think Jesus reveals something about himself to us in the way that he responds to these forlorn, very sad people that we find in quite a crisis of faith. He answers with a question. And the question is, what things are you talking about? In fact, what I draw from this is he's asking, what is the thing that you're struggling with? What is the thing that is on your heart? I want to understand the way that you see the world so that way I can address it from there. How many of you ever fall into that trap where you and I start answering the question before it's been asked, right? We start fixing people's problems before they ever asked us to, right? A lot of times things don't get worked very well that way, and Jesus is revealing a little bit about human nature in this. He's actually going to use them. How many of you have ever watched a TV show, it's an old one, about a detective named Columbo? You know what I'm talking about? If you don't, it's fascinating. But he kind of came off as like a disheveled, kind of doofus-like detective. And his way of getting people to fall into his trap was he would just ask them questions and eventually they would rat themselves out, right? And here the Lord's kind of doing the same thing to these two that are walking on the road to Emmaus. He says, you explain to me what you think you just saw, right? I was just explaining to somebody uh, just a little while ago that I've worked with the sheriff's office for about nine years or so as their chaplain. And it's amazing when people give testimony how many different perspectives you can get from the same exact event that happened. Yes? So Jesus is asking these two, what is your perspective on the matter? And here's what they give. Here's the testimony of what they saw and how they interpreted those events. And they said unto him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, which was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people. So far, that testimony sounds pretty good, doesn't it? They're on point. Verse 20. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. Again, they're still giving exactly what happened. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. Do you see what I mentioned there earlier? What were they expecting Jesus to do? Free them from Roman rule. Redeem Israel. Put the kingdom of David back and establish it the way it used to be. All those years ago. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. That was a big deal in 
Jewish culture. On the third day that someone died, that was when it was finished. The miracles of modern medicine, as we understand them, didn't quite exist. And it, there are stories where people were thought to be dead, and then they would not be, right? But in this case, by the third day, it was common understanding that if that person was believed to be dead, by the third day, they were really dead, right? So you can understand why they're discouraged. Yea, and certain women also of our company made, it, made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher, or the tomb where Jesus was. And when they found not his body, they came saying that they also had seen a vision of angels which said that he was alive. And the certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it even so as the women had said, but they saw not. Is there anything about what we just read from verse 19 through verse 24 that is untrue? Everything that we just read happened, did it not? But it was all about a matter of perspective. It reminds me of a story I read a while back. It was some of the effect of there was an old man who would sit on a fence every day. And there was a guy who would drive his, his nice Audi to work every day. He was a lawyer, and he would just be whizzing by down the street. And every day he would drive by, and this old man would just be leaning against the fence. And it really started to bother this guy. Every single time it started to bother him. And he finally one day just pulled his car over to the side of the road, got out of the car, looked at the old man leaning against the fence and said, do you just sit here and watch cars run by every single day? And the man said, what do you do? You just drive by and look at people standing against the fence every single day. It's all just a matter of perspective, isn't it? And for the two walking on the road to Emmaus, they had the facts right but their perspective was completely wrong. And Jesus is addressing their perspective, isn't he? In fact, they really weren't that far off. They really weren't that far off because Paul writes and tells us, if Christ isn't risen, then our faith is what? It's in vain. There's no reason for any of us to be here tonight. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then everything that we believe about him is untrue. We're going to mainly stay in Luke 24, but I want you to turn with me one place really quickly because there's something else at play. Would you go to Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28? Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28. Not only were they dealing with just general unbelief of what could be happening, but there was something else at play. There was false testimony. There was a disinformation campaign going on, if I could put it that way. And that is not a novel idea. That's been going on for as long as human history. In fact, in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 12, here's what happens. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large, I'm sorry, they gave large money unto the soldiers. Who are these soldiers? Well, let's look at verse 11. Now when they were go going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. Who are these people? These were the soldiers at the tomb of Jesus when he was resurrected. They tell the chief priests and elders, this is what's going on. So here's what they do. They give him money and they say, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away. Well, we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And look at this. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. If you study anything about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, even in 2020, 2022, you will find people that will claim that Jesus didn't actually resurrect, that people took his body. Right? We are always dealing with lies that seem so close to the truth, but they are not. Sometimes the 
the, the trouble of belief that we deal with isn't just inside, it's external things that try to convince us what God has said is not true. And that's not anything new, is it? Genesis chapter 3, Satan, in this lie way that he does, says, did God really say that? And this is the struggle that has been going on for all of human history. So verse 25 gives us a little bit of a glimpse into what happened. So Jesus listens to them explain what they think they saw. And here's his response. Verse 25, he says, Then he said unto them, O fools. Well, that seems a little harsh, doesn't it? You know, these guys are already in a rough state. And they're struggling a little bit with what they've seen. And they're clearly discouraged. The Bible says they're sad. Jesus hears what they have to say, and he calls them fools. I don't think that it's a mistake that that term is what Jesus uses. In fact, what does the Bible give as a definition of a fool? A fool, according to Psalms chapter 14, has said in his heart, what? There is no God. So why are these two walking on the road to Emmaus? Why are these two considered fools? He continues in verse 25, because you are slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now, let's walk this back for a second. These are two obviously very good practicing Orthodox Jews. They were there in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So if you were to look at either one of them and say, do you believe in the one true God? What would their answer be? Of course we do. They probably would start reciting Deuteronomy 6, our Lord is one Lord, right? what they were taught from the, the, from the day they were small children. But that's not really what is, that, what is the question here in Luke chapter 24, is it? They're not fools because they don't believe in God. The point of the question is, do you believe Jesus is God? That's the point of the question. So we could really reframe this whole thing. A fool has said in his heart, Jesus is not God. And if you come at the end of the conclusion of the crucifixion and all the evidence that they saw of the resurrection, and you still say, we can't rely on what Jesus said, you become a what? A fool, according to the scriptures, as we understand it. Now, I could ask anybody in this room, do you believe in God? I wouldn't put you on the spot, but I expect on a Sunday night crowd like this at 5 o'clock that many of you would say, if not all of you, would say, yes, of course I believe in God. In fact, if I followed that question up with, do you believe that Jesus Christ is God? I expect that the same number of folks would also say, absolutely, I believe in God. So then I have to ask myself, when I put myself in this same exact place, is why do we struggle so often to believe what God says? Why do we struggle so often to believe what Jesus Christ has promised us? Well, maybe you've said it before like this, and I have too. You know, I'm struggling with this situation. I'm struggling with this problem. It would be so much easier if Jesus would just show up right here and just tell me what to do. You ever thought that before? It would be so much easier if God would just speak from heaven and tell me exactly what I need to do. I don't know about you, but I'm reading Luke 24, and I'm starting to think that might not work very well, Right? Because maybe these two on the road to Emmaus were saying, wouldn't it be great if just Jesus just showed up and told us exactly what to do? And here is Jesus. Guess what? They haven't gotten it yet, right? So for you and I, what Jesus is trying to establish to them is, hey, listen, for my disciples, my presence isn't always going to be here. And my presence 
isn't going to convince you who I am. So I'm going to do something even better. Because in order for you and I to believe, we must believe God's word. Does that make sense? He is establishing for them because he is about to leave as far as his bodily presence is concerned. And that's significant because look at verse 16. It says, but their eyes were holden that they should not know him. Why didn't Jesus just tell them, hey, I'm here. I'm resurrected. Everything's great. You're going to be fine. Because when he left, they might question that what they saw was actually true. Yes? And even we experience God do miraculous things in our life, and sometimes when the next thing comes, the next storm cloud comes over, we say, hmm, maybe God did it that time, but I don't know if he can do it again this time. But the thing that's always constant in our lives is this. And this is what we need to look to. This is what we need to be convinced by is the word of God and the testimony of God because after Jesus calls them fools and says you are slow to believe, it's not mean-spirited. He's simply describing where they are at. They're just not sure. Is Jesus God? Is he, is he who he says he is? And here's where the sermon begins. The seven-mile sermon. And every sermon has to have a subject. I'm going to break down the three major parts of a sermon, all right? The first one is this. Everything has to have a, sub, a subject. What's fascinating about this subject matter is if I were to begin walking from where I stand to south of Hayesville at a brisk pace, maybe three hours. At a slow, meandering pace, probably four hours. How many of you think you would like to sit here for four hours and listen to me talk? I did not think that would be the case. Nor will it be. But in this case... Jesus' sermon was going to require three to four hours. Now remember, Jesus just resurrected from the tomb. Think of all the other things that maybe he could possibly be doing. Instead, he chooses to draw near to these disciples and teach them for three or four or however many hours he spent with them. And the subject of everything that he was teaching them, we read about in verse 26. Can I start reading in verse 26? I'm going to read to verse 30. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? He asked them this question. And then here's what he does. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Wow. He starts all the way back at the writings of Moses. Genesis. I was there when the Father spoke everything into existence. Right? Moses. I showed up as a figure to him. I was there when Abraham was there. I am who I am. Jesus expounds for them all the writings of Isaiah and everything that the prophet had written about what would happen to him at his crucifixion, and everything happened just as was prophesied. So hour after hour, he expounds to them everything the Scripture has to say concerning himself, and they drew nigh unto the village. They started at Jerusalem, they finally arrive at their destination in Emmaus. I'll bet you that was some powerful sermon. Whither they went, and he made uh, as though he would have gone even further. Jesus was willing to go even further with them. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us. Something's going on here. For it is toward evening, and the day is spent. 
and he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave to them. Not only does Jesus appear to them on the road, he teaches them all the way to their village. Then he takes time to enter into their household and break bread and eat with them. So what's the subject of the sermon? The subject of the sermon is this. Everything that he was preaching is all about the credibility of Christ. Is Jesus Christ credible? Can he be believed? And he expounds on all of the Old Testament to develop this fact. I don't know about you, but have you ever bought a house before? When you buy a house, what I found is that I couldn't just walk into the bank and say, I would like a loan, please. And then they just gave it to me. Didn't work that way. In fact, it required more paperwork than I could have ever imagined. By the time I left that place, I had banker's boxes full of paperwork that I had signed. They wanted to prove everything that I said was true. Do you have the income that you say you have? Give us proof. Give us multiple forms of proof. Do you have this kind of collateral? Do you have, the, what's your credit score? All those things that banks do to ensure that the person that they are lending the money to is what? Credible. Yes? And it makes perfect sense that when we say to someone, I want you to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that they would naturally take a step back and say, hmm, is that a credible claim? Yes? Is that something that I can believe? And if I were to ask you the question tonight, why do you believe that claim? Why do you believe that Jesus is who he said he is? Well, the Scripture tells us that faith is the evidence of things seen and the substance of things hoped for. We don't believe in Jesus like kids look at Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. Our faith is based on evidence and substance that God provides for us. Yes? And Jesus took the time for hours to develop that for these disciples who were in a crisis of faith. And sometimes you and I walk into gospel conversations thinking, this person just didn't believe me not realizing that it was going to take, in some cases, a lifetime for them to take the claims of Jesus as being credible. Yes? So here we are. Jesus makes the case. Verse 26 through verse 30. And can I tell you what I found in my own life is this. Jesus Christ is credible every single time. Have you found that to be true? And we only find him to be credible when we trust him with whatever the process is that we're going through, right? And he never leaves us. He never forsakes us. And he brings us through every single time. So now I want to read verse 31. Because every good sermon has a subject, but every good sermon must have a goal. Read verse 31. You follow along as I read it. And their eyes were opened. Isn't that a great statement? Verse 16, their eyes were covered. Verse 31, their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight, and they said one to another, did not our heart burn within us? Well, he talked with us by the way, and well, he opened to us the scriptures. Every good sermon has a goal. What was the goal? What was Jesus trying to establish for these wayward disciples on the road to Emmaus? He was trying to recapture their heart, wasn't he? And here what we read just in verse 31 is their eyes were opened, they saw and they could finally believe the word of God that they were slow to believe before because of the patience that Jesus had with them to bring them along. 
What happens when we have a fresh encounter with God? What comes out of that? Here's what we find. Our hearts burn within us. Have you ever found your Christian life has grown quite cold? You may not realize it. I may not realize it. But for certain, the people around us realize it. And certainly the Lord realizes it, doesn't he? And rather than accuse us and scold us because our hearts have become cold, because we've lost our spiritual warmth, what does Jesus present to us here in Luke 24? He puts aside everything else. He comes alongside us. He draws near to us. He visits us, and he patiently teaches us. Now think about this. You could have been on the road to Emmaus, and as Jesus begins expounding, you could have said, I don't have time for this. I can't listen to this for the, all the way to Emmaus. I don't want to hear that. You're not telling me what I want to hear. I'm too busy. I've got other things that I want to do. I've got other things that I want to talk about. But Jesus patiently introduces to us his word over and over and over again. Why? Because our hearts get cold. And it's only the word of God that is going to bring that spiritual warmth back again. In fact, this pattern of worship is everywhere in the Bible, isn't it? Everywhere we look, this pattern, I think about Moses. He goes out into the wilderness, doesn't he? He gets away. Jesus goes out into the desert, yes, for communion with the Father. Isaiah sees a fresh vision of God high and lifted up in Isaiah chapter 6. And sometimes what happens to our cold hearts, we stop believing God because we try to work and work and work and work and work. But we don't ever take a step back to listen to Jesus and let him teach us. We get burned out. Our hearts get cold. The pattern of worship is always the same. Go get a fresh vision of God. Then go out and serve. Then go out and work. Then go out and tell other people. And I find myself, just like everyone else, often getting the cart before the horse. And I wonder why my Christian life is either stale or I'm tired or I get weary. It's because I have not stopped and let God minister to me. And let God teach me. And let the Holy Spirit of God comfort me. So that way I can go out and do the same for others. Now they have a newfound faith, don't they? They have a newfound faith because their hearts are captured. They are warmed. Something has, have you ever had that happen where your spirit just rises up inside you and your heart just swells for whatever reason it is? I kind of get that's the sense what happens because they're probably tired. I mean, if I walked from here to Hayesville, good night. I'd be ready for a nap, wouldn't I? But these ones are encouraged. They're excited about something. Their eyes have been opened to something they didn't see before. They went from being sad to being incredibly glad. And let's read verse 33 through 35. What happens? And they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed. And hath appeared to Simon, and they told what things were done in the way, and how he was known of them in the breaking of bread. Wow. I'll tell you what, I'd be exhausted. But what did they do? Verse 33, they just finished a seven-mile walk. Every sermon needs an application. In fact, I would argue if your sermon doesn't have an application, it isn't worth preaching. And in our case here, the seven-mile sermon had... A subject that was the credibility of Christ. When they believed that, what did it do? Captured their heart. 
And the third thing in the application is this, and I believe it's exactly the same for us, is we must carry the message. Didn't even say they thought twice about it, right? It says immediately they got up. And they returned to Jerusalem just where they came. It was dark. It tells us it was dark. That's why they told Jesus to stay with them. But they just went. And why did they do it? Because they knew that there were disciples just like them who were just as discouraged. Their faith was in just as much of a crisis. They had the same unmet expectations that they were dealing with on the road to Emmaus. And they said, we have seen a fresh vision of Jesus. And we need to confirm to them that he is risen. That was the message that we read in 34. The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon, and they told what things were done in the way. What Jesus had taken the time to teach them is what they would go back and they would teach others. I think I could say this, that you could look around this room and it wouldn't take you very long to realize that there are fellow believers who are sometimes experiencing a crisis of faith. Yes? And they're broken by what they have experienced and need a fresh vision of God. And here's the thing. You and I, what we read here, have an obligation to share the same ministry that Christ did to us, to one another. But we have to realize that it's going to cost something. It may be more than a five-minute devotional or a 5K, if I could put it that way. Sometimes the requirement to invest in a hurting brother and sister will be a seven-mile journey. But you and I need to be willing to make that journey because that's what Christ has done for us. In fact, the Word of God tells us that not only did Jesus make this seven-mile journey, Jesus left the portals of heaven so that he could redeem you and I. Yes? Jesus walked the journey of Calvary with the cross on his back where he was beaten brutally, for you and I. And immediately as he is resurrected from the tomb, what does he do? He comes alongside these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he walks with them for seven miles. God must love us, doesn't he? He must genuinely love us. So what do we owe? What is the debt that we owe? The book of Romans tells us we are to owe no debt to any man except what? Love. And what does love require of us? Love requires you and I to carry the message. You'll find this hard to believe, but as a young man, I had a little bit of crisis of faith of my own. And it was faithful Christians who noticed that and took interest, and people who would take me out to eat time and time again and invite me to lunch. Pastors who would come alongside and offer me materials and take the time to give answers to my genuine questions as much as they could because they were realizing that what Jesus had imparted to their life, they wanted to impart to mine. And I could make the argument that I may not be standing here this evening if it wasn't for other faithful Christians who saw a fresh vision of Jesus and was willing to impart that on a young man in his own crisis of faith. And that is the same thing that you and I are obligated to one another but unfortunately, we live the Christian life with rose-colored glasses on. And not only won't we, myself included, make a seven-mile journey, sometimes we won't even cross the aisle to shake someone's hand in the congregation because we just simply aren't aware of what's going on in their life. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, Lord, give me new eyes to see those who are hurting, to see those who are struggling, so that I can provide the same ministry 
that Christ has offered to me. We know that we are to minister to the lost. We know that we are to evangelize and carry the message to the lost. No one in here is going to argue with me about that. But what is the obligation of us to minister to one another? Because these two disciples, when they saw what Jesus did for them, rushed back, even though it meant 14 total miles round trip, to tell them what Jesus Christ had done for them. So today, let's do this. Can we commit ourselves to be seven-mile disciples? Would you agree with me on that? Can we commit ourselves to be seven-mile disciples? Who this? Who believe that Jesus Christ is credible and all God's people said, amen. That we will trust him in every circumstance and allow our hearts to be captured by his message again. And that we will obligate ourselves, we will discipline ourselves to carry that message to others, no matter, no matter what it costs. So what's the seven-mile sermon? Can I sum it up like this? This is the seven-mile sermon. It is the message of an empty tomb to empty hearts. <laughs>